system. I got inspired to be bold today and uh, share with you my favorite, all-time favorite opening line of a Dharma talk. And it's a bold line. I figured if I couldn't say it here, then where could I say it? It's my favorite opening line of a Dharma talk. And it's from the great Western monastic teacher, Lumpur Samedo. And he is quoting it from the Buddha. And he likes to start his Dharma talks by saying, the doors to the deathless are open. Isn't that a bold statement? The doors to the deathless are open. And I know as well as you do how it works. We forget that the doors to the deathless are open, the doors to awakening are open, and we put on our little personalized combination lock, and only we know the combo, and we close that thing real tight, but actually it could never close. Uh, the doorway to awakening could never close. It's open. So I'll share with you a quote. It's really an image from the Tibetan master Sogyal Rinpoche. Um, it's about the self and it's about freedom and how those two dance. He says, For even though we have the same inner nature as Buddha, we have not recognized it because it is so enclosed and wrapped up in our ordinary minds. Imagine, if you will, an empty vase. The space inside is exactly the same as the space outside. Only the fragile walls of the vase separate one from the other. Our Buddha mind is enclosed within the walls of our ordinary mind. But when we become enlightened, it's as if the vase shatters into pieces. The space outside merges instantly with the space inside. They become one. Then and there we realize that they were never separate or different. Actually, they were always the same. So today I want to offer kind of yet another interpretation or map of this practice in the process of waking up, uh, a way that mindfulness and concentration form a basis and a balancing point for insight to deepen and arise as it is in our community so beautifully. Uh, And if you think, no, not for me, yes, for you also, everyone. And I was reflecting on how Mary Grace was kind of offering her framework of the map of practice and awakening through the armies of Mara and the four powers. And Donald offered the map of developing practice and awakening through concentration. John offered the map uh, through the three characteristics and the subtle characteristics. Is many doors, you know, but it's all the same teaching. We're basically saying the same thing over and over again in our own words, moving through different doorways. And often I think we teach through the doorways that have worked for us. I see that with many of the masters I've worked with. They tend to teach what's worked for them, which is why it's nice to have a teaching team here. So my hope would be 
that if the whole map doesn't resonate for you, uh, it's really more thematic. And I would be willing to guess that one of the themes might resonate with where you are today or where you were yesterday or where you'll be tomorrow. And really what I want to talk about is the cycles of practice and in many different aspects, touching many different aspects. So let me name a few of them. Firstly, regularly returning to the ground of ethical conduct. It feels important to start there. It's where we started our retreat. Uh, It's where we live from. Cycles of concentration. Cycles of doubt and confidence. Cycles of intention and energy. Cycles of insight and integration of insight. Cycles of fear and despair. Of understanding the three characteristics more and more directly. Cycles of reactivity and of equanimity. And cycles of awakening and digestion of awakening. This is what we're doing, all of us. I think if I wanted to give this talk in two sentences, I would just say this. I was really reflecting on this. What is it that I want to convey? And of course, it's stunningly simple and very, very obvious, uh, but not easy. We know that. So really what I want to convey is that all of life, and in fact, all of the spiritual path, uh, everyone's spiritual path, is in cycles. It runs in cycles. And the key is balance. So another way of saying that is everything is changing. When we hold on, it hurts. And please, try not to take it so personally. Again and again, you come and you visit me. And again and again, what I'm saying to each one of you is, it's a cycle. Let's illuminate the cycle. Let's find where it's moved out of balance and come back to the middle way. And every one of us has our own flavor that we're moving through all the time. And yet, it's just cycles. And we're just trying to find this mysterious middle So we'll start with the ground, and the ground is our ethical conduct, uh, the precepts of non-harming that we took and committed to and have been practicing with such care during this retreat. Even though I spend a huge portion of my life in, in these kind of communities, which is a tremendous privilege, I'm still continually touched by the respect and the safety and the groundedness of non-harming. And not just the individual version that I feel through myself when it's strong, but the collective version in our community. The whole practice grows out of our care and precision with ethical conduct. It's not a secondary practice. It's not an extra practice. It's not preschool practice. It is the practice. So... In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha said, uh, first he said, protect your happiness. He was talking about the precepts. Isn't that beautiful? Precepts is a protection for happiness. And then he said, kind of how the practice progresses out of ethical conduct 
It is natural then, friends, in a virtuous person that freedom from remorse will arise. In a virtuous person, freedom from remorse will arise. Freedom from guilt. Those of us who have been swimming in that, wouldn't that be nice to have freedom from guilt? It is natural that in a person free from remorse, gladness will arise. That in a glad person, rapture will arise. That in an enraptured person, the body will be calm. That a person of calmed body will feel pleasure. That the mind of a person feeling pleasure will become concentrated. That a person whose mind is concentrated will see things as they actually are. That a person seeing things as they actually are will grow dispassionate, not so obsessed with the world that a dispassionate person will realize the knowledge and vision of release. Letting go. So we're fond of saying that the Eightfold Path is one path, that it begins with ethical conduct, and we develop through the concentration, the meditative repose, and that wisdom arises out of that. But similarly to how I hold the wholesome quality of compassion in many of the skillful states, I really see the ethical conduct as both path and fruit. And as path, it's almost this intention until enlightenment by practicing the precepts, we are, as it's said in the 12-step tradition, acting as if. If we see something that we want to emulate but we can't quite manifest it in its maturity, we could as the 12-step tradition suggests, act as if. So the Buddha uh, once said that if we practice the precepts with a lot of diligence and with a lot of care, it's acting as if we're a noble one, as if we're awake and free, on the path. And then as the fruit of practice, uh, it's also understood that as we begin to wake up, the precepts become more and more clear and precise and easily followed in our conduct. There's an ease to it. We don't have to fight it so hard. So we start at the ground. And we stop, and we continue stopping as we're here. And this concentration, this collectedness of mind begins to develop with the precepts as the ground to support that concentration, that we're free from trying to Uh, apologize inside or plan how we're going to get out of this thing that we just did, the mind can settle. And it does. And in insight meditation practice, one of the kind of flavors of concentration that the whole practice is being guided towards uh, is this quality called momentary concentration. The unbroken noticing of a variety of objects one by one, with careful, um, continuous attention, right? So Donald gave the whole talk on concentration. Sylvia gave a whole talk on concentration a week before. It's an important topic. This aiming and sustaining and the rapture and in the body and the happiness in the mind and the way that the mind just single-pointedly says yes to present moment experience. So what I want to point to, in addition to all of the teachings that have already been offered on concentration, 
is that the key is that it cycles. And we forget this. And so much suffering comes out of it. So whatever concentration means for you, it starts to develop. It starts to grow. We start to drink in the sweetness of the benefits, the restfulness, the restorativeness of these states. You know, and we say, ah, sweet, the sweetness, you know. But then what happens? It deepens, and it's almost as if the way I see it is there's enough stability and openness and pliancy of mind and body that the next layer of what I call the material has the space to arise. And we all know what the material is. Is it fun? Not always. Not always. And we think that we've lost it. Again and again we think we've lost it. Try to shift the posture to the right place. Zero in on the breath a little harder. Maybe if I sit later. Trying, trying, trying. And in fact, the material is the fruit of the stability of the concentration in one sense of the word. And if we move through that material and every one of us has a different flavor, the guilt, the shame, the doubt, uh, the old story, the wounds, the core beliefs, they come. If we can really see that it's just part of a cycle of deepening practice and bring that kind of caring mindfulness to bear, then the whole thing doesn't get derailed. The struggle is absent, and with the absence of that struggle, there is peace and freedom. And we keep going. So it's really not so much about the material, it's the reaction Again and again we've said this, it's what arrow are we shooting? So it's a cycle, and we forget and we remember, and that's a cycle too. And so we stop, and then we can better see. The relationship between concentration and insight. And I want to read you a quote by Master Tian Tai. It's from 6th century China about stopping and seeing and how they interrelate. He says, there are many paths for entering the reality of nirvana, but in essence, they are all contained within two practices, stopping and seeing. Stopping is the primary gate for overcoming the bonds of compulsiveness. Seeing is the essential requisite for ending confusion. Stopping is the wholesome resource that nurtures the mind. Seeing is the marvelous art which fosters intuitive understanding. Stopping is the effective cause for attaining concentrative repose. Seeing is the very basis of enlightened wisdom. A person who attains both concentration and wisdom has all the requisites for self-help and for helping others. And it goes on from there, but it's not a great place to end it. All the requisites for self-help and helping others. I'm remembering back to towards the beginning of the retreat and the story that Sylvia told about when she was in Costa Rica. She was looking for those birds. Remember, I don't remember what type of birds. The special birds. Where are they? I can't see them. And she posed to us this question that I've been reflecting on ever since. Maybe you have been too. She said, what are we trying to see? It's one thing to look. I'm looking for the bird. I'm looking for the bird. What is it exactly that we're trying to see? 
And we've been saying again and again that one of the important collections of experiences of being human that we're trying to see are the experience of the three characteristics of human existence. That things are changing, that when we hold on it hurts, that it's not as personal as it appears. Uh, Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, anicca, dukkha, anatta, so many ways to say the same thing, which is just a term. To be experienced individually by the wise, as it says in the text. One insight that some of you are starting to explore, it was an insight that John talked about in his talk also last night that I wanted to point to as something that uh, might be seen in moments, you know. Uh, and maybe not in the version that I'm going to give, but just something that you might look for, uh, is an insight basically about mindfulness and awareness. In the Thai forest tradition, it's talked about a lot. Uh, and it's talked about as mindfulness and awareness. Uh, sati is the word for mindfulness. Maha sati is the word for great mindfulness, which we could term as awareness, or uh, the great mindfulness which sees emptiness, which again, John was talking about last night. Ajahn Chah actually called the great mindfulness the one who knows, the knowing quality. So this is a teaching from uh, Ajahn Fuang, who a late Thai meditation master, and it was translated by his student, who is... Uh, the scholar and meditation teacher, um, Tanasari Bhikkhu. So Ajahn Fong says, once the mind is firmly established in the breath, you then try to separate the mind from its object, from the breath itself. So he's talking about object of breath and mind or awareness. He says, focus on this. The breath is an element. It's part of the wind element. Awareness of the breath is something else. So you've got two things that have come together. Now, when you can separate them through realizing the breath's true nature as an element, the mind can stand on its own. After all, the breath isn't you, and you aren't the breath. When you can separate things in this way, the mind gains power. It's set loose from the breath, and it's wise to the breath's every aspect. When mindfulness is full, It's wise to all the aspects of the breath and can separate itself from them. This this movement of kind of it being all one thing to, oh, there's these different parts. There's the object and there's the knowing of it. So we keep going and we have our own insights and everybody's got their own flavor and they're all good. There's no such thing as a bad insight. You might think, oh, I haven't had that one. So what? You know, all doorways lead to the deathless. Or awakening. Or freedom. Or whatever word we like to use. Whatever word speaks to our own heart is the right word. So we keep going and we move through these other cycles that I like to call confidence and doubt. So we might have an insight like that. Or our version, and ah, confidence, ah, I see it. You know, we looked, we saw, what did we see? Ah, this. 
Then there's the doubt. You know, Mary Grace talked about this again the other night. Uh, And I was thinking about how I wanted to talk about doubt, and I realized that I wanted to talk about it um, in a more traditional way than that has been talked about before on this retreat. And I want to break it down a little bit into doubt as a hindrance and doubt as a fetter. So what do I mean by that? Uh, Doubt is a hindrance. Doubt as a hindrance is what I think of as a visitor to the mind. It comes and visits. It usually has thoughts and it might have some somatic echo. Um, It's a visitor. So a quote from the Buddha, Samyutta Nikaya. And it starts out, there are things causing doubt. Okay, so then I think of it as there are things causing doubt. And then I'd like you to fill in the blank with whatever things have been causing you doubt recently. So you fill in the blank with your headline and then see what the Buddha has to say. Doubt is a hindrance. There are things causing doubt. Fill in the blank. Frequently giving unwise attention to them is the nourishment for the rising of doubt that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of doubt that has already arisen. I mean, I don't have to tell you that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, isn't it true? It arises, and for some reason we give it more credibility than the thought we had five minutes before that was just a mindful thought of noting. The note doesn't have credibility, but the doubt does, and we believe it, and we make it real, and we feed it, and then we create our world out of it, and it's so painful. We've got our car keys in hand. You know, and you're, if you're thinking, oh, she's talking about me, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about us. Every one of us has had some sort of metaphorical experience in a life of spiritual practice of car keys in hand, you know, ready to go. So as a hindrance. Then there's doubt as a fetter. And doubt as a fetter, kind of the short version of what that means if this word is new to you, is it's a doubt that's more deep-seated. And it's a doubt fundamentally about is awakening real and is it possible? So it's, it's deep-seated. So we call it a fetter to awakening because if we don't believe that it's real in some way that we can make authentic for us, then, well, you know, it gets a little tiring doing this, right? This is hard work. Uh, so we cycle through it. So this is from uh, Tanisro Bhikkhu again. He says, the fetter of uncertainty or doubt uh, is defined as doubt in the awakening of the Buddha, the truth of his Dhamma, and the practice of his disciples. What this uncertainty boils down to is doubt as to whether there is um, a deathless dimension, or I'm going to use the word freedom just to make it more user-friendly a freedom dimension, an awakening dimension, and whether one can realize it through one's own efforts. The experience of freedom, following on the practice of the Dhamma to the point of freedom, cuts this fetter by confirming the possibility of a human being's awakening to freedom. The correctness of the Buddhist teachings is a guide to freedom and the worthiness of those who have reached freedom. And really, of course, just like the word enlightenment that I always add an S to, we'd have to say freedoms. Because it's not one thing. We don't check it off our to-do list. It's a process, and it cycles too. 
So we move through this and we struggle with it and we drown in it and you check in with me and you check in with us and you check in with yourself. In the end, all of our skillful means included, doubt is dissolved by the direct experience of insight, by verified faith. So for a while you borrow others' faith and then it becomes more and more verified. And of course there's a thousand ways it becomes verified. So I'm just going to share one way it becomes verified. And I'm deliberately not telling a story that I heard from one of you in room one. Because, uh, you know, I want to keep that close. But honestly, there's been so many stories like the one I'm about to share. Not exactly the same, but similar. So this is from a student. says... It was during a walking meditation in the garden near the temple. I can remember the exact spot. I lifted my foot and put it down on the earth and felt all the sensations of moving and knew that there was no one to whom it happened, no self at all. The thought came, it's an empty process. And this thought was as empty as the step. So it's a process happening to a system, this living, that we glue on, I and mine. And we also start to develop confidence, not just in the not taking it so personally, but also in the fact that things change. You know, we go through a cycle of doubt and we come out the other side. And what happens? We tend to say, oh, I got it. They come in, Heather, I got it, I got it. And of course, you know, I'm cheering you on. I'm filled with mudita. Then we go through the I got it cycle. And there's a million different versions of that. What's yours in the last 48 hours? You know, I got it. In the tradition, they talk about, and I'm sure you've experienced at least one of these at some point during the retreat, you know, The mindfulness is steady. The energy is in balance. There's incredible happiness, bliss, tranquility, um, you know, equanimity, so stable, so everlasting. It's forever, right? I got it. (laughs) That's subtle attachment which is, when unnoticed, is incredibly painful. But I have to say, um, I also see in our community how out of, it's almost as if we as a community are maturing. And there's some understanding on the community level that when these amazing meditative experiences come, that, oh, I shouldn't get attached, I shouldn't get attached. I almost think, oh, we doth protest too much, you know? There's such a delicate balance of drinking in the beautiful qualities of meditation, sinking them into ourselves, learning them, knowing them, not running away in fear of the attachment which inevitably will come. You know. um, and seeing that that too cycles and that it actually runs on a continuum. What I'm seeing as I'm talking to you all is that there'll be a beautiful meditative experience And that's like a big percentage of the experience. And then there'll be this small percentage of experience that's attachment. 
And then you'll say, ah, but you know, I'm attached, I'm attached. How do I work with this? And what I've been saying is, um, why don't we lean towards the wholesome? It's so important to note the attachment and be really clear about that percentage of the continuum because it will derail us. At the same time, how do we find the balance where we're not othering the beauty of this practice to try to get away from the attachment? Is this making sense? Yeah. So then it's like sinking back in, knowing, knowing, knowing that the attachment's there, but also not missing the opportunity to get on a cellular level what it means to have calm and peace and mindfulness and equanimity and bliss suffuse the system. Both and. And that's why in these periods it is so important to be in an environment like this where we have the guidance of teachers. Because it's tricky. It's a slippery slope. And we all slip and slide. It's okay. So what we start to understand is that, oh, it is a cycle. There is more. And out of that, we recommit to our practice. We keep going and we keep going. And there's this quote that Joseph Goldstein is fond of saying to his students, and I know that some of you have practiced long with him, and so you know it and you'll smile when you hear it. And he likes to say, it's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you come in with your whatever it is. It's just the tip of the iceberg. And then he says, it's always the tip of the iceberg. There's always more. And maybe that's discouraging to you, but I find it really inspiring. It's just the tip of the iceberg, always. So then we're humming along in our practice, and everything's going well, and we've moved through all these cycles, and we're developing some confidence and some maturity. And then what happens? At some point or another, because part of the human condition is dukkha, is unsatisfactoriness, is suffering, it's part of the truth of being human, we hit what I call the dukkha cycles. And, uh, you know, we could call it the dukkha cycles, we could call it the material cycles when all of our material comes up. And so I just want to talk about four different flavors of these cycles. And perhaps a little about how to work with them. So one flavor of the dukkha cycles I call uh, death cycles. And basically what they are is when uh, everything starts to die. This isn't a particularly Buddhist thing. It's found in every spiritual tradition. It's the death process the death process. And so, you know, I'm dying, everything's dying, everything's falling apart. And, and it, it takes over the, the lens. You know, it takes over the lens of our view uh, in cycles and in moments. And thank goodness for impermanence in times like that. You know, we'll pass. So I was reflecting on this a story that a student told me And it's a student that I've been working with long-term on and off retreat. And she had an experience like this. She said it was okay if I shared it. It's not somebody who's here. And she went on retreat uh, about a year ago. And everything was going along fine. A very dedicated um, student of the Dhamma. And so she was practicing and, you know, keeping the precepts carefully. And the concentration was rising for her, whatever that means for her. 
And then out of nowhere, she started having images of her husband and her two small children dying. Of course, this was very startling and disturbing for her. You know, these images of her beloveds, her most deeply connected beloveds in this life, passing away before her eyes. And then out of that, she started to get images of people that she didn't even know dying. These images and these kind of felt sense of the dying process. And then it started to move through her and she felt like she was dying. Dying. Then she started looking around and everything was dying. It was all falling apart. Uh, Very painful. And very consuming. Very, very easy to get caught here. And what I want to point to in her story is that there was a personal aspect of it and a universal aspect of it. And these tend to get glued together. And when they do, it's very confusing. So the personal aspect of it was that she was witnessing an image and in felt sense, her deepest beloved's dying, her husband of many years. They're very close. And her two young boys Very personal. And so the grieving process and the material, they came up around that. Her process around that personally. And then the archetypal or the universal process of it's all dying. And her learning process through that, which is much more universal and seeing, oh, everybody goes through this. And not just knowing it intellectually and hoping that it won't happen to us, but feeling it, knowing it. Finding acceptance with it, deeply. So many teachers say that this practice is just a preparation for death. And mindfulness here is really seeing the gifts of the preciousness and the uncertainty of life. And again, as I keep saying over and over, seeing the usness of this, that we're all included. No one's left out. So that's one flavor of dukkha, right? (laughs) A second flavor of dukkha is what I call the the fear cycle. And the fear cycle for me is a dear old friend. Uh, I came into the world with a predominance of fear. And I noticed that both Mary Grace and I uh, seem to love to talk about fear in practice. You know, for me it's because it was one of the hardest one friendships I've ever developed in my life with fear. So the fear comes, right? And it comes to us in different ways. The fear, the anxiousness, the panic, the storylines, the visceral sense. It becomes, again, so real and we get swept away by this. And like Mary Grace, I am quite heartened by the stories of Mara, the stories of Mara and the Buddha. So I know she talked quite a bit about Mara in her talk. And so I want to tell you my favorite story about the Buddha and Mara and um, how I use it to work with fear. I'm quite heartened by the fact that in the tradition, in the stories, it said that Mara continued visiting the Buddha uh, long after the Buddha's full awakening. That's so heartening. And it's like we don't have to leave any part of our experience out ever. So one day the Buddha was uh, sitting in meditative repose and Mara came to visit as Mara was apt to do. 
Now, whether you hold this as a mind experience or an actual physical experience is up to you. It works both ways. Mara came to visit, and Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, who I mentioned in the first Dharma talk, he was the one who got enlightened between the standing posture and the lying down posture, uh, was there at the door and saw Mara and said, Oh, Mara, you can't come in, go away. And the Buddha came out of meditation and said, Who's that? Who's that, Ananda? And Ananda said, Oh, it's just Mara. I'm sending him away. Don't worry, venerable sir. And, of course, what did the Buddha say? No, no, don't send him away. Ananda, prepare tea. Invite him in. Invite in Mara for tea. And so Ananda begrudgingly invites in Mara for tea and prepares tea and perhaps some cookies. Uh, I heard this story in a commentary from Thich Nhat Hanh. That's where I'm pulling it from. They sit down for tea, and Mara's up to his old tricks, you know, and says uh, anything from, who, uh, you know, uh, people don't believe in your teachings, and, you know, you really shouldn't be giving that teaching. People can't handle it. And it's kind of interesting. There's all these varieties of doubt often uh, with Mara. So he's, he's doing his dance. The Buddha's listening, yes, yes, Mara, tell me more. And Mara, yeah, and, you know, no one really believes in you anyway. And why don't you just go off in the forest for the rest of your life? No one needs your teachings. Whatever Mara was saying. Yes, yes, tell me more. You know, how are you doing, Mara? No, you know, I don't want to talk about that. But the Buddha keeps listening. The Buddha says, you know, I hear you, Mara, I see you. Now tell me what it's, tell me how you're doing. Enough, enough about me already. Tell me about you. And Mara starts to get deflated. And eventually, kind of, I imagine getting really small and saying, you know, actually, it's not so easy to be a Mara. <sighs> Nobody likes me. <sighs> you know, people are always sending me away. No one invites me in for tea. It's not so easy being a Mara, you know. <laughs> What I love about this commentary is the Buddha's response to Mara. He goes, Mara, I see you. I hear you. You know, actually, it's not so easy being a Buddha either. (laughs) My own cousin tried to kill me. There was almost a schism in the Sangha. There's this war going on over water rights with my own people. It's not so easy being a Buddha. And I just imagine them kind of just sitting there, smiling at each other, sipping their tea in silence, like, yeah, yeah. It's like this. So I use that story. And I'll never forget one time in this meditation hall. It was right here. It was over on this side of the room again. Actually kind of over next to the wall. My favorite spot that year. And I was sitting and fear came again. And I decided, well, I'm going to sit through this one. I'm going to ride this one out. And it was strong. It was a regular visitor in those years. So it was, you know, a really regular visitor. And uh, I decided to stay up late and just kind of ride it out and keep sitting. So I'm sitting and I'm sitting. And finally the hall clears out as it does, you know, later in the evening. And I'm sitting there alone. And there are these sounds you know, those of you that sit up later come in early, you know about the sounds in this building. These little sounds are very hard to describe. Uh, these little kind of creaks and moans and clicks, and they're very subtle, but we're very quiet you know, here. 
And of course, the whole system just totally freaked out. It was already in fear, and it just went up to red alert. Who's there? And I kept turning around. There's no one there. I knew there was no one there. But the fear was at an intensity level of ten and a half on a scale of one to ten. And I just kept saying, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. And I'd just take a breath. I see you, Mara. Take a breath. I see you, Mara. You know, this story has an interesting ending because it went on actually for two hours straight and it didn't diminish. I saw Mara over and over again. She could say, oh, it's not a happy ending. The fear didn't diminish. Finally, the system got so exhausted that I realized that mindfulness could not be maintained. And so I just said, okay, I see you, Mara, and I'm getting up and going to bed now. And I got up and I went to bed and I crawled into the covers and I held myself. And finally I went to sleep. Sometimes the fear is that intense. Uh, And I name it that way and I name it in a story without a quote-unquote happy ending because I know some of you have gone through it and are going through it. Uh, This thing about knowing that we do survive. And I sit here as another one who has survived. And that sounds really obvious, but fear is a survival level energy. So one of the things that is really helpful in working with fear cycles, whatever your version of it is, Um, A few tools, again, hard-won tools out of my own experience. And a couple of them are out of something that I'm now taking to call mindfulness in the nervous system because fear is pervasive and it's old. Uh, You know, the adult mind doesn't have a lot of impact there sometimes because it's really old. The reptilian brain is ancient and fear comes in that way. Uh, So there's a piece about ground when the fear comes that way. And I figure if the Buddha took his right hand and touched the earth when Mara was rocking him to his foundations under that Bodhi tree, then that might be a skillful means for us. He took refuge in the earth and in groundedness. The earth is my witness to all good intentions and actions to be free. We could do that. Some of us do do that. We can touch the earth. We can feel our feet and the sensations in our feet. You could feel your feet right now because what I'm doing is I'm calling in these cycles of energy into our space. And things are not as separate as they were a few weeks ago. And so it's like, mmm, it moves through. I, I say that in case you're feeling it. It's okay if you're not feeling it. It may not be the cycle that you're in right now. But ah, we could all feel our feet. What do the feet feel like right now? Is there tingling? Do they feel like blocks of wood? Warm? Cold? Numb? What's going on? This actually settles the fear in the nervous system because fear in the nervous system tends to move in a cycle of up. If you think about it, Sylvia talks a lot about startle, right? What's a startle? (gasps) We move up. The whole thing... (gasps) So if we just balance and bring it down a little bit, sometimes there's some support. I also quite like to use creative mental notes when working with difficult states, including fear. So what's a creative mental note versus a traditional mental note? 
In this case, a traditional mental note would be fear, 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 traditional. A creative mental note uh, would be something like, I see you, Mara. It's knowing the fear's there, but it's just bringing in a little bit of what? Intuition, creativity. Uh, it's, It's bringing it alive in a different way. Another creative mental note I use for the fear cycles, uh, sometimes uh, actually objects in the physical environment reveal themselves in their fearful aspect, is what I call it. Uh, So I'll just, I've created this little creative mental note. It's just called scary objects. And I'll look around and everything just looks kind of scary. It's like, oh, scary objects, scary objects. I'll never forget this one time I was sitting in my room and I got completely freaked out by my Kleenex box. (laughs) Like, scary Kleenex box. <laughs> you know, it's okay. It, it wasn't scary a day later. It just manifested as scary. Or how much are we going to believe this? What is reality? <laughs> and then lastly, metta. You know, the Buddha offered metta, as, as, firstly, as an antidote to fear. You know, so it's available in moments when we can remember to use it. Okay, we're still in dukkha. Third flavor of dukkha. <laughs> I notice now I'm grinning. I mean, at some point we've got to have a sense of humor about this. It just goes on and on and on. But not forever, right? Because that would be against the law of impermanence. <laughs> okay, so another flavor. Unsatisfactoriness. The heart of dukkha itself. So we look around and we see unsatisfactoriness everywhere. We have the cup of tea, and it's like, oh, but it's not going to last, and there's no lasting happiness in this cup of tea. And we see the bird, and yesterday it was beautiful, and there was bliss arose in the body, and today it's just, oh, but it's going to die. And, you know, these sense stores, if I'm just always running out through these sense stores, I'm never going to get free. It's all unsatisfactory, you know? It's kind of almost like Eeyore mind. <sighs> You know, Eeyore. Anyway, so we go through that cycle. And again, there's wisdom there, but there's also, when it goes out of balance, it becomes Eeyore mind. Okay? The fourth flavor of dukkha, this is the last one, okay? I call it the sick and tired of it all cycle. Another version is, I want to go home. And I want to say really clearly, because again, we believe these thoughts, they become so real, we back them up with lots of facts and information about why it's true. Um, It's rippling through the hall. And it's just passing from one of us to another. Maybe not every retreat it comes. Maybe it hasn't come this retreat. Maybe it's been the whole retreat. It's passing through and touching us in moments. And it becomes so real. Uh, to really name how much it's rippled through this hall. And if you're going through it, um, I'm sorry, it's painful. And um, it's rippling through. So many of us have experienced this. Every long retreat it comes. Short retreats it comes. Sometimes it never comes. I don't know. Anyway, I want to go home. I'm sick and tired of it all. And we go through these cycles of giving up. And the cycles of giving up lead to a deeper intention for freedom. 
So I'm going to go back to something I said in an earlier Dharma talk that I was noticing when I was studying the Enlightenment poems of the nuns and the process of enlightenment for them. One of the things that I noticed was in common with many of the stories, a lot of which I didn't share with you, there's often this cycle of really ardent practice followed by despair and giving up, just completely given up. And then out of it, awakening arises. How does that work? You know, it's almost as if the letting go of, I can't do this anymore, somehow transforms into the letting go of freedom. And it's mysterious. Can we remember this? That maybe when we're most about to give up, freedom is knocking on that door that we've closed. And the doors are open. I remember at one point in my practice getting so angry at my teachers. I was furious at my teachers because I felt like they had, um, they had not told me the truth in some way. I got to this point in practice where there was no turning back. I couldn't get out of it. There was no escape hatch. Um, it was so hard, and the only way out was forward, and I just wanted to give up, and I was furious with them for not telling me how hard this was going to be. You know? The sick and tired of it all cycle. It comes, it lives its life, and it passes away. Could we, in a moment, remember to look for freedom? So at some point in the process of all these cycles, we start to develop a real stability of equanimity. The mind swings wildly back and forth, the highs, the lows, I've got it, I've lost it, on and on and on and on. And we start to just develop stability that can meet all this with grace and groundedness and openness. This is a quote from the Zen teacher, Catherine um, Thanis. She says, one student recently said to me, now I understand why it's so important to sit still and not move. When you move, you don't find out what you're moving away from. When you sit still, you can experience what you want to move away from. Traditional image of equanimity is that of a great-grandmother tree. Roots deep into the ground. And this wind, this wind that's blowing, I mean, we can literally experience it as we're walking up the hill and the wind is blowing and we're just blowing off the road. And ah, it's like metaphoric physical experience of can I stay steady in the midst of this wind of experience? When equanimity is subtle, four qualities manifest. The first is the equanimity of abandoning of fear. What that means is that when we experience pain, the pain of being human in all of its forms, uh, there's no second arrow. Just steady. Ah, unpleasant. Let's leave it at that, shall we? The second quality is the abandoning of delight. So what that means is we no longer get attached to the clarity of insight and the depth 
of concentration that comes in cycles. It's there, there with the knowing of it, it's gone. There's nothing extra. The third quality is that wisdom lasts long. I think of it as a continuous flow of effortless mindfulness. And isn't it sweet when it's there? Just like lifting, moving, reaching, breathing, this, seeing, that. It doesn't even matter. The objects are totally irrelevant. It's just the flow and the knowing of it. The fourth quality is called equitable vision. And what it really means is that everything that happens is the same. Uh, it's really talking about the, the verses from the faith mind that both Sylvia and Mary Grace read, right? The great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. When neither love nor hate arises, all is clear and undisguised. Separate by the smallest amount, however, and you are far from it as heaven from earth. No preferences. And then there are those moments that arise in practice when the conditions are ripe for you know, different levels and different degrees of freedom, of awakening, whatever you want to call it. Everything comes into balance. The seven enlightenment factors, the five spiritual faculties the seven wings of awakening that we've been talking about all the way through the retreat. And it's like what Sogyal Rinpoche said in the beginning quote, you know, the vase breaks. That solid, separate sense of self. You know, so then we ask, what is freedom? If the doors of the deathless are open, what is the deathless? And I really appreciate John saying this morning after the instructions uh, what we already know, which is uh, that we can't know, that we can't intellectually know what freedom is. Uh, And what we do know intellectually about awakening or freedom is the finger pointing at the moon. It's not direct experience. So... Like John and that spirit, I'm not going to answer. But I do want to call it in. If the doors of the deathless are open, might we put out a welcome sign? Please, come in. Show your face in whatever way is available in this moment. This is from Ajahn Fong again, Thai Force Meditation Master. The heart, when it's released, is like the fire element in the air. When the fire goes out, it isn't annihilated anywhere. It still permeates space. Simply, it does not latch on to any kindling. So it doesn't appear. When the mind goes out from defilement, it's still there. But when new kindling comes, it doesn't catch fire. It doesn't latch on, not even to itself. That is what is called release. Now it would be really easy to stop here. It would be really easy 
they'll say, oh, this time I really got it. Check that one off the to-do list. Now I've got enlightened retirement to look forward to. (laughs) But does it work that way? No. No. And then we have to be humbled through that process. That actually when freedom visits us in all of its forms, uh, it is both the culmination of every moment of spiritual practice that has ever happened through us and the beginning of another cycle. And that cycle is a cycle of digestion and integration. Uh, It's a cycle of, I think of it as running... Everything that might not have been touched by that freedom, through that freedom. So then we have to revisit everything through a different set of glasses when reality shifts temporarily or less temporarily. It's a new pair of glasses. We have to run everything through that. Our bodies, our old stories, our family history, how we relate to the world. Everything has to be seen anew. Because as John was talking about, there is the um, relative and the absolute. There's the personal and the universal. And they meet. And so as this perfection of view of the universal becomes more to the foreground in our experience of a human being living a life, then we have to turn and look at the personal through that lens and allow wisdom to infuse it. And it is a process that is lifelong. And always deepening and always informing us. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection today. And I just want to finish with the last stanza from the verses of the faith mind. And it's really the spirit that I would invite us all to hold uh, the teaching today. It says, Words, words. The way is beyond language, for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.